Our boys over there are blessed with good American mothers who keep them supplied with warm hand-knitted socks. Knitting, knitting, knitting the live-long day. Knitting until these boys are safely home. The women of America belong to that army of mercy who backed up our boys at the front to the very end. But those American women who have experienced the backache, the dizzy, headachey, or dragging down feelings which accompany the weaknesses and ills of womankind, all can find some neighbor, some friend, who has been benefited by that favorite prescription of Dr. Pierce's, which was prescribed by him 50 years ago, and which has done so much for womankind. A tonic which contains no alcohol nor narcotic. Faded, jaded, tired, overworked women. Weak, nervous, delicate, and suffering ones. These are the women who are helped to health and strength by Dr. Pierce's favorite prescription. It's a legitimate medicine that corrects and cures, a tonic that invigorates and builds up, a nervine that soothes and strengthens. Most druggists sell it in tablets or liquid. Send ten cents to Dr. Pierce's Invalids Hotel at Buffalo, New York, for a trial package of tablets. Hello, everybody. This is National Demystified, a show in which I get to know the city better. I'm your host, Alex Steed. That right there was our friend Sean Nelson reading some advertorial that ran in a 1918 edition of the Tennessean. More on that in a few. National Demystified is made possible by Knack Factory, a commercial video and content production company with offices in the city. And by We Own This Town, a network of podcasts made by Nashvillians. Hey, if you don't mind, would you please rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and find us on social wherever you live on the internet. Okay, so I was going to do an episode about Spanish flu in Nashville. I very well might at some other time, but instead I decided to look at what life was like in the city in the country at large in 1918. The three big stories of that year, in retrospect at least, is the end of what we now know as the First World War, then second, the Great Train Wreck of 1918, otherwise known as the head-on crash at Dutchman's Curve that happened in the summer of that year, and finally, the emergence and then re-emergence of Spanish flu. So let's just say that this is a Spanish flu-adjacent episode in which I'm going to visit pieces from the Tennessean from that time that add at the top of the show as a taste of what is to come in this episode. In the meantime, to give you all some background on the flu itself and the flu in Nashville, what follows ran in the national scene on March 17th of this year, 2020, not back in 1918. It is written by the great J.R. Lind, who I like a lot, who is a great journalist, and uh, he covered this a bit in a way where I feel like I don't have to. <laughs> so, between 1918 and 1920, a virulent strain of influenza infected 500 million people worldwide, more than a quarter of the world's population at that time. Nearly every country on Earth was touched by the disease, including isolated islands in indigenous communities in the Arctic. Estimates of the death toll vary. Record keeping wasn't nearly as sophisticated as now. And censorship in place during World War I led many deaths being underreported in an effort to keep up morale. Most estimates range from 17 million to 50 million, with some as high as 100 million. Unlike other pandemics, it disproportionately killed the young, a demographic cohort already strained because of the war meant to end them all. The pandemic 
has gone down in history as the, quote, Spanish flu, though that moniker, too, was a byproduct of the war. Spain was, in fact, one of the least affected Western countries far less impacted than neighboring France, but Spain was neutral and wartime censorship didn't apply there. So most of the early reporting on the epidemic in Europe came from Spain. King Alfonso VIII fell ill and his condition was reported breathlessly by the press. All this coupled with the centuries old La Laventa Negra gave the pandemic its popular name. And just FYI, uh, what that means is uh, black legend, which basically portrays an unfavorable impression of Spain worldwide. People didn't like the Spanish <laughs> back in the day. And it started uh, It started with the anti-Protestant policies that started to take place in Spain in the 16th century. Uh, anyway, back to JR's reporting. The disease spread in distinct waves. The second was the worst, going global in two months. This came at a time without rapid international travel or a global economy as interconnected as the one we know today. Historians believe the disease first arrived in the United States in the spring of 1918 via a group of sailors disembarking in Boston. Servicemen returning home from Europe or just generally packed together in training camps and other installations in preparation to head over there spread the disease along the East Coast and eventually into the Midwest and then across the country. So again, that is reporting from J.R. Lind in the national scene that came out in the middle of March of this year. So anyway, what was America and Nashville, for that matter, like in the time of the Spanish flu? I come through the Tennessean specifically September through December of 1918, which is around when the second wave of the pandemic made itself known, to get a better sense of where we were 100 years ago, 102 years to be exact. The papers in the early part of the 20th century, or at least this applies to the Tennessean at this time, aren't always clear about what is a news story, a society story, or an advertisement, or as we would call it today, advertorial. With few exceptions, everything is conveyed in big blocks of text, and there are few indications of, again, what is editorial, what is reporting, and what is advertising. The second page of most issues is usually mixed, or was usually mixed with society reports, in what appeared to be, in retrospect, again, advertorial about various remedies that I would wonder how helpful they were <laughs> in combating the Spanish flu. Anyway. Alas, as they say, I went through and tried to pick up a representative group of pieces that spoke to what folks were reading about Nashville and the country at large at that time. So thank you again to Sean Nelson for reading the piece at the front and to Carolyn Kendrick for helping out and reading a few more of these throughout the episode. All right, onward. Let's go back to 1918. October 7th, 1918. Can you nurse a sick person? Can you aid a nurse to do so? Are you willing to try? Local Red Cross appeals to women, trained or untrained, to volunteer at headquarters, Hermitage Club, immediately. Someone at the information desk will be there with full instructions to register women for nursing service or to act as nurses' aides. 
20 nurses asked for Sunday by the city hospital. 20 nurses asked for Sunday for the power plant. 20 nurses aides asked for Sunday by the women's hospital. And all women who can answer yes to one of the three questions come at once to Red Cross headquarters or YMCA. Let us justify in Nashville the spirit of the Red Cross. October 11th, 1918. An outrage public demands the flushing of the downtown streets and sewers, and they demand it now. Personal likes and dislikes, political moves to benefit political futures must be cast aside. The cry today is for action. God pity the man who, in the midst of a scourge, can't view things from other than a selfish viewpoint. The Tennessean calls upon the city commissioners to lay aside their differences and do. The public knows the streets of Nashville need flushing and demand they be flushed without further quibbling. The people of Nashville want the filth and accumulated dirt of six weeks standing cleared from the streets and once again calls upon the city commissioners to do their duty. October 14th, 1918, Duluth, Minnesota. With probably 900 persons dead and thousands homeless and without clothing, and with property damage mounting for late millions of dollars, whole sections of northern Wisconsin and Minnesota Timberland tonight are smoldering, fire-stricken areas, with only the charred ruins of abandoned, depopulated towns to accentuate the general desolation. The bodies of 75 victims lie in Duluth morgues, hundreds more along the roads leading to Duluth and Superior lay where they fell when overtaken by fire. 12,000 homeless and penniless refugees, all in need, more or less, of medical attention, are quartered in hospitals, churches, schools, private homes, and in the army here, while doctors and nurses sent from surrounding areas and communities attended them, and nearly every single able-bodied man in the city has been conscripted to fight the flames, which are now reported dying away. Why don't you rise and shine? Take those blues right off your mind. Cause the blues ain't nothing but the easy going off this ease. That's all. Everybody's crazy about the doggone blues, but I'm happy. Oh, so happy. October 17th, 1918. Acting under telegraphic instruction from Washington, the Food Conservation Week campaign from October 28th to November 4th has been postponed until December 1st. This action was taken because of the prevalence of the influenza epidemic, which would make it impossible to utilize the church and schools during that period since the meetings are being held in many parts of the country. For Minutemen, who during the next week were to devote their activities to this campaign, they've been notified by Chairman Dunlap of its postponement. K-K-K-Katie, beautiful Katie, 
you're the only g -g 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 girl that I adore. When the m -m -m moon shines over the k -k -k cow shed, I'll be waiting at the k -k -k kitchen door. K -k 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 October 18th, 1918. A clear call to the farmers and farmerettes to mobilize their products from war gardens and farms to compete for the prizes offered in our annual harvest contest, which starts Monday, October 21st. 27 prizes and money will be given. Bring your best canned vegetables and fruits, your jellies, preserves, and pickles. Bring your finest fruits and vegetables from the farm that we may show what the fertile soil of Tennessee will produce when tilled by the patriotic soldiers of Hoover's army. Come, dear heart, meet the flowers of June. Come out in my garden so gay. I've roses, bright roses of every hue, and sunshine for the whole day. There is laughter and song in my garden, and a spread over all. October 19, 1918. A Spanish influenza is an exaggerated form of grip. Grove's tasteless chill tonic should be taken in larger doses than is prescribed for ordinary grip. A good plan is to not wait until you are sick, but prevent it by taking Grove's Tasteless Chill Tonic, which contains the well-known tonic properties of quine and iron. It purifies and enriches the blood, and pure rock red blood strengthens and fortifies the system against colds, grip, and influenza. Grove's Tasteless Chill Tonic is an exceptionally good general strengthening tonic for the child, for the mother of the family, young or old. You can soon feel its strengthening, invigorating effect. It is acceptable to the most delicate stomach and does not cause nervousness or ringing in the head. October 24th, 1918, active search is being made by the police for two as yet identified white men who shortly after noon on Wednesday enticed Herbert Richards, supposedly an employment agent for Mason and Hanger, into an automobile, drugged and robbed him, and threw him out by the roadside on Shady Lane, located in northwest Nashville between Fisk University and the river. Richards, who has an artificial limb, had this cut from his body, the pockets of his trousers slashed open, and when found by the police was unconscious from the combined efforts of the drug and a severe blow to the back of his head. He later recovered consciousness sufficiently to state that he did not remember being in a car and had no knowledge whatever as to the identities of his companions or how he met them. Oh, how 
how I hate to get up in the morning. Oh, how I'd love to remain in bed. For the hardest blow of all is to hear the bugler call. You've got to get up, you've got to get up, you've got to get up this morning. Someday I'm going to murder the bugler. Someday they're going to find him dead. I'll take him to his room some night and fill his horn with October 31st, 1918, Clarksville, Tennessee. Mr. E.O. Turnley, a well-known tobacconist and one of the leading citizens of the city, shot himself Wednesday morning at his home. He lived some time after the shot, remaining conscious, and said that he regretted what he had done, but having symptoms of the flu and warned to stop work of all kinds, he was unbalanced at the time. Mr. Turnley leaves a wife and three children and a sister, Mrs. S.D. Wade of Nashville. The tragic death was a great shock. Now won't you listen, honey, while I say How could you tell me that you're going away Don't say that we must November 5th, 1918. The menace of the cur dog and the street dog of every kind was forcibly illustrated in the laboratory of the city health department Monday morning, where seven children, one after the other, were given each the first of the necessary 21 treatment as a preventative of hydrophobia. Each of the seven had been bitten by the same mad dog in South Nashville. The dog was killed and his brain examined and found to be full of rabies. The children were then rounded up and brought to the health office for treatment. The same dog bit ten other dogs and one horse before he was stopped in his career. The children, five boys and two girls, were all Negroes, and with a single exception did not whimper during the injection of the fluid. Their ages ranged from five to about eight years. Does he write it say? Yes, he writes to say. November 17th, 1918. Following a dispute supposedly arriving between a number of whites and Negroes over securing of seats in an inbound power plant train, a near race riot broke out on Hadley's Bend early Saturday morning, 57 arrests being made by members of the DuPont police force before the disturbance could be quelled. Of the 1,000 employees who were passengers on the train, over 300 were said to have taken part in the fight, during the progress of which rocks and other missiles were hurled through the coach windows, considerable property being destroyed. No lives were lost, however, and according to official reports, none of the men suffered from more than minor injuries.
Lafayette, Tennessee, November 23rd, 1918. Mrs. Will Banks, aged 55 years, died of influenza at her home at Yukon Thursday. Twelve hours later, her son, 14 years old, died of the same disease, and they were buried in the same grave at Nebo after services by Reverend W.J. Malone. December 5th, 1918. Attention American mothers! Our boys over there are blessed with good American mothers who keep them supplied with warm, hand-knitted socks. Knitting, knitting, knitting the live-long day. Knitting until those boys are safely home. The women of America belong to that army of mercy who backed up our boys at the front to the very end. But those American women who have experienced the backache, the dizzy, headachey, or dragging down feeling which accompany the weaknesses and ills of womankind, all can find some neighbor, some friend, who has benefited by that favorite prescription of Dr. Pierce's, which was prescribed by him 50 years ago and which has done so much for womankind, a tonic which contains no alcohol nor narcotic. Faded, jaded, tired, overworked women, weak, nervous, delicate, and suffering ones. These are the women who are helped to health and strength by Dr. Pierce's favorite prescription. It's a legitimate medicine that corrects and cures, a tonic that invigorates and builds up, a nervine that soothes and strengthens. Most druggists sell it in tablets or liquid. Send 10 cents to Dr. Pierce's Invalids Hotel at Buffalo, New York for a trial package of tablets. December 10th, 1918. Mrs. Mary and Margaret Jones, daughters of John Jones of the Maxwell House Billiard Parlors, were victims of a very unpleasant experience Saturday, and the episode in which they figured has raised a suspicion that German emissaries are at work in Nashville as they have been in other sections of the country. The young ladies were on their way to town Saturday morning, about 10 o'clock, from their home in the West End and were passing the corner of 6th Avenue and Church when an unknown man, without the slightest warning, threw poison acid of some kind in their faces. Fortunately, the full contents of the bottle did not land squarely in the faces of either of the young ladies, but the quantity was sufficient enough to cause the most excruciating pain and badly blister the skin of each. The victims of the dastardly attack were returned to their homes as quickly as possible, and Dr. Samuel Briggs was called to attend to them. He found them suffering terribly and was unable to ascertain the nature of the liquid, which was deliberately thrown into their faces. Oh, death, where is thy thing? If what you say is the positive truth, oh, death, where is thy thing? I don't care about the pearly gate. December 22nd, 1918. Attractive girls to preside over Christmas roll. Mrs. John W. Thomas, chairman of the Red Cross Christmas Roll Call, has planned quite an interesting feature for today. Booths for the downtown shops, which will be supervised by a number of Nashville's most attractive girls. 
Ms. Margaret Creighton serves as Chairman General of this feature of the work. Look so nice and neat. No one could be just as cute and sweet. That's what Jimmy thought when the wedding ring he bought. Soon he'll go to France, the boat to meet. Jimmy thought he'd like to take a chance. See if he could make the Kaiser dance. Stepping to a tune all about the silvery moon. This is what they'll hear in far off France. December 25th, Cleveland, Ohio. Children usually hold the home together, it is said, but three pairs of twins, now aged 10 and 7 years and 3 months respectively, failed to avert the divorce suit filed here by Mrs. Elise Kuntz, their mother. She complains that the children's father neglected her and the twins and was cruel. That's it, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to National Demystified. I am your host, Alex Steed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Cameron Davidson for uh, making this episode sound so good. Thank you to We Own This Town for distributing and Knack Factory for sponsoring. We are glad you listen. I'm glad you listen. Uh, I look forward to connecting again soon. Thanks so much. We're seven. Sorry, we'll start again. These sentences are so long. Yeah, These are fucking nuts. It's like nobody had any time to just put in a damn period. Okay, I think that's fair. <laughs> One after the other, we're given each the first of the necessary twenty-one treatment as a preventative of hydrophobia. Also, they fucked up and wrote phobia twice. Hydrophobia, phobia. <laughs> Good lord.